Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, boy, are you ever in for an experience? That, that was such a lame pun. Sorry about that. Okay, well, so last time on the show, we were planning on doing a one-off on the topic of experience as a source method or goal of Christian theology. And basically, we tangled ourselves in knots and uh, once or twice lost our composure and definitely lost the thread of the discussion more than once. And that was so fun that we decided to keep going. So that in today's episode, we are going to try to pick up some of those loose ends that we left dangling, give some historical origins for why this is an issue the way it is, and try to move forward with some heuristics or rubrics to help us and you in sorting out experience. But I, I'm just going to say up front, I have no guarantees that any of this is going to work. We're just kind of diving back into the abyss because experience is everything. So, ready, Dad? I'm ready, Sarah. It's going to be an experience. <laughs> <laughs> just like Jimi Hendrix would have us have. Okay, so... Jimi Hendrix was a famous rock and roller from the previous century, for those of you who are not aware of that. Okay, now, Dad, please. That's right. Okay, um, and by the way, listening to him on the guitar do the national anthem was quite a trip. Well, I could say in this respect, quite an experience, no? Anyway, <laughs> okay. all right. You know, Chief, you know, to sort this out, out, you know, since experience can be anything and everything, is everything, you know, you have to make some distinctions, some analytical distinctions that prove useful uh, to, to making our way through the, the fog of experience. And in theology, I think that's chiefly and basically a distinction between experience as source of knowledge of God and experience as product of knowledge of God. And the latter is Paul's fruits, not sources, but fruits of the Spirit. So well, we're going to get to that, I think, in a, in a while. But first, we have to ask some questions. Why has experience emerged as a possible source of theology, particularly in the modern period? And why is that deeply confused or problematical? And number two, and this, I think, Sarah, was one of your big concerns. Why is discernment of the religious affections an important art both a pastoral art and really an art for every Christian, the art of self-examination. Uh, introspection, I would say, in the light of so-called extrospection, looking outside oneself to the Christ who comes through word and sacrament. And then the third question I think we have to ask is the question of relevance or attention to the social, spiritual, cultural context here and now in which Christian preaching, teaching, mission, and ministry take place. So I propose in this episode that we work our way through those three. How does that sound? It sounds like the difference between the systematic theologian of the pair of us doing the outline versus the person who writes a lot of fiction on the side doing the outline for the episode. I think this one will make a lot more sense. So let's try it. <laughs> okay, but I'm sure your synapses will be firing as we move along here. 
Of course, of course. Probably with objections every step of the way. But, you know, hey, that's the fun of this. So that's right. <laughs> let's go. Okay. So first, what, why has experience emerged in the modern period, eventually even as a possible source of theology? And why is that so problematical? And I would suggest this. The emergence of experience goes back to the rise of modern science and the epistemological dispute between Rene Descartes and John Locke. Okay, just a, a pause here, Dad. I, this is another thing. It's Descartes, not Descartes, Descartes. So just go back and say the epistemological difference between Locke and Descartes. I'm sorry, I should have told you sooner. It drives me nuts. Okay. And I, I will cut this part out. I think you're putting Descartes before the horse. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to keep it in now just because you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm snorting. <laughs> this doesn't bode well for the rest of the episode. <laughs> All right. The epistemological dispute between Rene Descartes and John Locke. Descartes' meditations on first philosophy showed that immediate sense experience was not reliable. That's his method of doubt. In fact, the progress of science, he argued, depends on transcending the naive literalism of first-person sense experience. For example, according to first-person sense experience, the sun rises and sets around our fixed planet Earth. And we know since Copernicus that that's just not true. Now, Locke accepted that... Um, critique to an extent, but he passionately rejoined that theory untethered to experience is no progress at all, but the reboiling of a cauldron, belching up new superstitions coming straight out of our heads if they're not tested and tried by experience. And I have to point out here, Sari, there's a certain irony to Martin Luther's term enthusiasm. The idea uh, that you have a direct inspiration from God that authorizes new revelations in you, an experience of the Spirit. Luther mocked and said, uh, thinking of the dove in the story of Jesus' baptism, that you'd swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. Luther called that enthusiasm. And John Locke said, theory untethered to experience is a cauldron belching up new superstitions, and he actually used Luther's term enthusiasm. Oh, interesting. All right, so let, let me just recap then. So Descartes figures out that there is something frighteningly unreliable about sense impressions, and the sun rising is just one example of many. But Locke said, if you try to solve that problem with theory or intellection alone, you're going to come up with just as many false trails as your naive sense experience. This sounds to me like it's rooted in very ancient Western philosophical debates, but kind of is taking on maybe a new urgency as, you know, the, the scientific method and, and experimental accuracy to some degree with the rise of new instruments for measurement is making it a more urgent question. Is that correct? Absolutely, Sarah. And here's the thing, from, and this is so characteristic of the epistemological arguments of the Enlightenment, everyone was trying to hitch their philosophical wagon to the increasing prestige of the natural sciences. 
and the beginnings of the of the ideological uh, uh, appropriation of um, natural science, we can see right here in this debate debate between Locke and Descartes. Descartes. So, Descartes. Okay, Descartes. 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 I'll have the. Never mind. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, why? But that. Why then was this um, personal sense experience so important for Locke? He found it politically to be the foundation of personal autonomy, the foundation of personal autonomy. For Locke, you have an unalienable right and dignity to test ideas according to your own experience. And this is politically potent doctrine at the roots of modern notions of personal autonomy. Don't tell me your grand ideas. In my experience, that just ain't true, and I ain't buying it. And that's, you know, the, the kind of the Lockean stand for uh, individual personal autonomy. Now, Sarah, right, if you think, right. think back to our episode on revivalism, this was precisely George Whitfield's pitch. The new birth could be had in your own personal experience, making you pope, your own personal pope, so you don't have to believe anyone religiously who fails your own experiential test. And from there, the modern mutation of Reformation Christianity into born-againism proceeded after the great revivals until it mutated, I would say again, in our present-day secular culture of personal autonomy. It's still founded on personal experience played as a trump card against any and all external authorities. Uh, This trump card is played to discredit and so obscure the factual role that traditions, both toxic and salutary, actually play in forming experience. And I'll let you react to that, but then I'd like to give a few thoughts from Nicholas Walterstorff and Hans-George Gadamer. Okay, well, I'm sure I won't do better than either of them, but actually I've just been um, reading John Locke's Second Treatise of Government for um, a later episode, won't give any spoilers away yet. Um, And one thing that strikes me is immediately, you can't help but notice in reading it, is that he is writing against the divine and absolutist right of kings um, in in the governmental treatise. And so I can see, or from what you said, I'm guessing that for him, this sense experience to defy authority in the name of personal autonomy is um, addressing a genuine need that people under the power of others have to not be controlled, not be told what they think, what they feel, what is true, especially when it is contradicting their own reality. And, and, you know, everybody goes through this. They, you know, they're expected to feel or see or think a certain way and they just don't. And, And then what? What are you supposed to do with that? So Locke is trying to establish some kind of of space for that. But then it, it was interesting that what you said is that that goes from my preserving 
the the sheer reality and my right to my own experience, which I think is something you and I would more or less affirm with certain certain caveats. But then then that can quickly turn into therefore nobody else has any claim on me at all because um, what I experience is what I experience, and that's just an absolute indisputable fact. So that cuts you off from others. But I think maybe what I find so. Um, disagreeable about claims for experience now is it's gone one step further. Um, in fact, <laughs> Andrew and I were talking about this last night, and he said, we actually almost said the same same phrase came to mind, is we experience other people's experience as a radical will to power, not just their autonomy <laughs> or distinction, but like their their experience now impinges upon me and obligates me and enforces something upon me while at the same time saying I can't possibly experience it. So what do I know? So, I mean, that, that seems to me like what the the logical progression out of something that seems to me sound um, in what it was originally fighting against has mutated into this unholy beast. Yeah, that's real good. That's real good analysis. And I think you're right on, you're spot on with that, Sarah. Uh, I remember when I first discussed this with my professor, Cornell West, and, and he made a very interesting account because I was, even at that stage, I was suspicious of this. And he said, well, you know, personal experiences, and this is the word he used, incorrigible. You can't correct it. You know, it is what it is. It's a person's personal experience, and you can't take that away from them. And I think that is politically potent. And a modern example would be Václav Havel's Power of the Powerless, where the greengrocer finally uh, gets the courage simply to tell the truth about his own experience. And that brings down the whole house of cards. So I think to that extent, you're right. This this is an important doctrine, but it reinforces social atomism. You know, the, it privileges the individual and makes uh, the individual's experience uh, uh, immune uh, to examination, let alone criticism. And as then as you and Andrew discussed last night, it it then becomes a, a, a slippery slope all too easy into an assertion of the will to power. Uh, and I think that's what I, uh, Cornell West and I talked about all so many years ago. So here's the monkey wrench. Locke thinks, you know, that you can simply attend in a disciplined and rigorous way to what's purely given to you in experience. It turns out, Walter, uh, Walter Storff says, that false beliefs al already inhibit either perception itself or its efficacy in producing the relevant first-order and second-order beliefs. The beliefs we already have either obstruct our direct access to the facts or render that access irrelevant for our purposes since the corresponding beliefs are not evoked. That's a little bit dense, but I think what Waltersdorf is getting at is all experience presupposes attending, giving attention to something. And giving attention to something is not raw, um, uh, inactive, passive reception of, of uh, an infinity of data flowing at you. Uh, attention is directed. The, the perceiver is actually been trained since since infancy onward 
trained uh, uh, in, in, in ways to, uh, to pay attention to what is relevant. Right. Yeah, actually, this is one of the core findings of, of recent neuroscience is that our brains are really not um, pointed video cameras and audio re- recorders, but they are highly selective at all times and are always cutting things out and distorting things and shrinking and saving and amplifying, um, you know, in the, the broader sense of... Um, of our evolutionary needs for survival, but even even without an immediate danger of a saber-toothed tiger, like you said, there is such an infinity of stuff all the time that merely to maintain our sanity, we have to cut stuff out all the time. And I suppose a great deal of, of misunderstanding and offense between peoples is attention being trained in different ways, not for reasons that are necessarily cruel or sinful or heartless, but because of what, you know, their cumulative experience so far has told them to pay attention to. Exactly. And that's why the idea of raw, pure sense experience as a source of personal autonomy, we just can't accept that in a doctrinaire kind of way. Right. So does that mean Descartes is right or is Descartes' critique wrongheaded? Well, I, I think something in between, since Walter Storff and I are both pragmatists, okay? We're neither rationalists nor empiricists. But Walter Storff, you know, would say that all, and, and so would uh, Alistair McIntyre, that our perceptive apparatus, our cultivated ability to attend to what is relevant, has already been deeply formed by the... Um, moral, religious, spiritual, secular traditions in which we have been raised, which, as McIntyre said, are our moral starting point in life. We're not stuck there. We can move beyond them. Uh, But that's actually how we begin. Every child begins as the pupil of its parents, and then its extended parents and teachers and scoutmasters and et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. So this is what Walter Stort said. We, we have to acknowledge what thinkers of the Enlightenment, particularly Locke, would have found appallingly unpalatable, namely that examination of tradition can take place only in the context of unexamined tradition, and that our examination, our convictions as to the facts, are schooled by our traditions. The thinkers of the Enlightenment hoped to bring about a rational consensus in place of fractured tradition. That hope has failed. In my judgment, it was bound to fail. It could not succeed. Why? Because there's no place outside of the play of traditions. Even to critique a tradition is to find another trend's vantage point in an alternative tradition from which to speak. And so the need for self-examination here in this respect is really rather radical. And and the idea that you could found knowledge on a, a pure source, whether it's experience in Locke or intuition in Descartes, uh, is impossible. So I'm thinking of how popular it's become in recent years to talk about confirmation bias, that we seek out things that confirm what we already think. Um, 
maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I mean, when I first heard the concept, I thought it was illuminating. But the more I think about it, the more I think, first of all, it's so obvious as to be saying nothing. And secondly, it doesn't, like you said, give you any vantage points. Because then, you know, just talking about confirmation bias can be your radical will to power over other people. Like, well, you're just saying that because you already think it. You know, it doesn't, the person who accuses of confirmation bias is engaging in confirmation bias. It's one of those very tedious, sophomoric, philosophical circles that you can't really yes. step out of. Yeah, not bad for a writer of fiction. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you, Dad. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, but very sophisticated, often metaphysically profound fiction, I would say. Now, uh, here, here we go. Now, I just want to mention one more thing in this connection. Hans-George Gadamer, who spoke famously about a a prejudice against prejudice that has developed uh, in this tradition of enlightenment foundationalism, the idea that you can get outside of history, get outside of being embedded in a tradition. And this is what he wrote about this. Um, Does the fact that one is set within various traditions mean really and primarily that one is subject to prejudices and limited in one's freedom? Is not rather all human existence, even the freest, limited and qualified in various ways? If this is true, then the idea of an absolute reason is impossible for historical humanity. Absolute reason would be, take your pick, Descartes with his intellectual intuition or Locke with his experiential verification uh, as a foundation of knowledge. Uh, reason exists for you only in concrete historical terms. It is not its own master, but remains constantly dependent on the given circumstances in which it operates. In fact, history does not belong to us, but we belong to it. Long before we understand ourselves through the process of self-examination, we understand ourselves in self-evident ways in the family, society, and state in which we live. The focus of modern subjectivity is a distorting mirror. The self-awareness of the individual is only a flickering in the closed circuits of historical life. That is why prejudices of the individual far more than his judgments constitute the historical reality of his being. End quote. Uh, let me just say here, he's using the word prejudice in the literal sense, prejudgments, what comes before judgment, the suppositions from your traditions that enable and facilitate making judgments in real life experience. That's what he's talking about. Well, I think that's all super insightful and wise, and I, I think I would basically agree with it. And I can immediately see the problem that all of this um, heritage from Descartes and Locke onward, we've inherited in the wake of the European religious wars means fundamentally for us even now that if we cannot force people to see the same way as we do by reason, then what is left but to force people by force? I think there is still a deeply embedded fear of violence behind the abandonment of some kind of common reason that stands outside the bloody flux of history. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and ideologically, for some people, that's the role that natural science is supposed to play now, though we've witnessed, especially since COVID, the political weaponization of science to the extent that science itself is now becoming 
suffering a legitimacy crisis in some uh, to a definite extent. Well, it was even before COVID started. We've talked about that a little bit. But yes, it certainly accelerated. So now I think, Sarah, it's time for you to talk a little bit. You you uh, have developed a, a kind of an inventory uh, for the examination of religious experience. And I think uh, what you've said about this uh, is, is pretty important. Uh, just some Lutheran reminders here. For us, the issue of experience is framed by the sovereign and merciful claim of God through gospel word and sacrament. You are mine and I am yours. Uh, and this experience of the gospel is simply and solely the surprising gift of self-entrusting faith in it. It actually happens that I'm given faith. We do experience this, okay? And uh, this experience is precious because it's also militant. We live in a world in which there's a maelstrom of voices, including the voice of our own antecedent personal experience, uh, that, that, that want to form our identities, claim our service, which idolatrously are treated as ultimate or demonically claim us as the final word. So uh, it's into this maelstrom of experience and the various voices that are claiming to interpret it for us, including the voices that are playing like tapes in our own heads, it's in this context, I think, that Luther was right to say that faith is often a battle in this, uh, against experience in the sense that one's trust in one's identity as a redeemed child of God is often under trial and testing, demonic assaults or idolatrous counter-attractions. So, with that, I hand it off to you. Tell us about how we should test our experience. <laughs> Okay, well, well, just to your last point there, I mean, I, I'm just going to signal this again. Once again, we're just not even going near the question of how we know that that stirring, beautiful, unmoving account you just gave is actually what we should be doing. You know, we're uh, on some level uh, accepting the givenness of the gospel as we have received that. And so I guess it, here we, we can't go into why should anyone believe that? That is a separate kind of question, and it certainly doesn't entail experience, but we're just going to... I guess set that aside. <laughs> so. Right. Well, yes. It, it it for us right now, it's operating as an axiom. It's the tradition uh, out of which we are critiquing our enslavement to traditions. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. So I actually came up with this kind of list of like heuristics or rubrics for interpreting experience because I, I like that you know, what you said from Cornell West that experience is incorrigible it's just a thing but it is a, or an infinite number of things but it is a thing a set of things you can do something with and that you have no choice but to interact with and so I was just trying to think like what would be a way of of working through what we have experienced or believe we've experienced to make it fruitful or to push it aside when it is unfruitful. I, I guess this is taking more of the pragmatic tack um, that, you know, you've, we've talked about in previous episodes too. So, and I think this actually applies to all experience, not just Christian theological experience. So I'm going to use uh, just ordinary life examples too. But I think the first question to ask is, was your experience real? So here's my, my very, um, Silly example of this, as someone who has lived in a great deal of other countries and dealt in other languages, when we first moved to France, um, somehow we got the wrong 
postal box at our apartment building. And so the people whose box it actually was slipped a note in there, um, you know, alerting us to the confusion. And then it said that they demandaient, well, that's French, the cognate word in French and in English is um, demand, that they demandaient that we move to the correct postal box. And um, I was probably a little hysterical and overwrought having just moved to a new country with a three-year-old child and none of our stuff had arrived and da 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 da, da starting a new job and everything. And I was so offended that, you know, we're foreigners and we're guests and we're new in your country and you demandaient that we change our postal box? Like, how are we supposed to know we had the wrong postal box? Well, about a week later, as I was doing my French lesson, I discovered that demander in French does not mean demand. It means ask or even request. It was a perfectly polite form of expression. Anyway, so my point is that I felt genuine rage and offense at my nasty new neighbors, and it was a completely false experience because of what I brought to it did not allow me to <laughs> interpret the cues correctly. And I think, as funny as this is, I think this is insanely common of human experience that what we think we're experiencing is actually not what's going on. Or, you know, anyone who's stayed married for a long time knows that you spend a lot of time sorting out what you think you're experiencing in your spouse or what you think your spouse is experiencing. And then having to actually through conversation find out, oh, that face or that tone of voice did not mean what I thought it meant, even though that's how I reacted to it, experienced it at the time. So that's just the first thing is, is, is it even real what you are experiencing? You know, this is a really hot topic now because of the academic discussion of so-called microaggression. Are you familiar <laughs> with that? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Okay. Do you think that fits into this category, this question? Is it real? Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, only by way of saying that I think the whole concept of microaggression is so preposterous and the world can take that not as a microaggression, but a macroaggression against the very concept of microaggression. Just like grow <laughs> up, people. Come on. So, but you, you perhaps have something more, a more intelligent critique to offer than my scoffing dismissal. No, I just, my mama taught me not to take offense where no offense was intended. And, yeah, no you kidding. know, it's been a good rule for me in life. It's the principle of charitable interpretation to put the best construction on everything that we talked about in a couple of episodes ago. Uh, I have no doubt that some kinds of injurious prejudices uh, are in our heads and loose and flippant language that can be offensive slips from our lips unwittingly if not deliberately. And becoming sensitive to that, especially uh, uh, where it affects people who have historically been injured uh, and are sensitive, acute, sometimes acutely sensitive to that, is an important demand of Christian love. Uh, uh, on the other hand, we don't want to ever reduce victims to being pure victims. Uh, uh, and that means that they have their own human responsibility uh, not to take offense where no offense is intended, but rather to enlighten uh, the offender, the, uh, the apparent offender, uh, to the sensitivities in this regard and ask for more neighborly behavior linguistically.
Well, sensitivity can be its own radical will to power. <laughs> and I say this as a sensitive person myself. And, you know, and there is a real thing like what we used to call passive aggression. But if the problem to me in something like microaggression is that it is entirely in the eye of the experiencer. It actually does not matter what was intended, whether there was offense intended or not. It puts the whole reality of the situation on the side of the person who experienced it. So in that case, uh, to extend the analogy, then a French person who knew that an American was moving into the apartment block should have known that demande sets up a different connotation in American English and therefore should not have used that word in their note asking us to change postal boxes. Like, that's the logic <laughs> behind the microaggression is that the experienced reality is the truth of the situation. And so that's why I think asking if it's real is so important because maybe you experienced it, but what you believe believe you experienced was not real or your experience was false or misleading. And I've seen this so many times and sometimes with, I, I, I can't tell the story, but I saw once uh, a deliberate distortion of an experience that metastasized and had really severe ramifications in the community that I was living in. And I think that was the thing that put me on notice very early on life to be extremely wary of people claiming that they suffered something um, and the power it gave them and the unwillingness to remember the initial response to it because the power given was so... I, I know this is like a completely useless example because I can't give any details, but I have an experience that made me very wary of experience. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. Is it real, reliable? Okay, that's one test. Okay. All right. Now, here's the next thing. Is your experience representative and if it's not, then how meaningful or significant is its uniqueness? So let me give an example as, uh, okay, so I'm, I'm a middle-aged woman now. And if I look back on the whole course of my life, I have had such overwhelmingly positive experience of men qua men. I had, you know, some scoundrelous boyfriends. And I had a couple instances of sexual harassment or just being around a super creepy dude. And what I remember now, like looking back from the vantage point that I am now with a lot more life experience, is that when you are very young as a woman and more vulnerable and more naive, it's very easy to take those experiences of the creepy dude or the harassment and they they can function as a window into the truth about ultimate reality. And like, oh my God, all along, I thought men were okay, but it turns out they're horrible. And this is their real, their real goal. And it's and it's precisely because it is so discontinuous, or it was in my case, that it became this like um you know, this uh, sharp nail sticking up that somehow had to be dealt with in the fabric of reality. And so, you know. So I am not saying that every woman has my experience. Clearly, there are women who have persistently horrible experiences of men. You know, um, hopefully it's largely in culturally different situations. And, you know, there, though within our own cultures, there are certainly fam families that are toxic and just, you know, free-floating men who are toxic and horrible and violent. What I'm saying is that it's important when you have an anomalous experience or or a very um, striking outsized experience to try to figure out how it fits within the whole swath of experience. Because this is another neuroscience thing that what is consistent does not maintain our attention. What sticks out rivets our attention. So mm -hmm. I, I, 
yeah, so I'm I'm trying to think like why so all right, why have I never felt at home in any movement or organization of women that's called itself feminist? Clearly I did not have the acceptable set of experiences. And clearly those women did in some way. And so uh, at some point I had to learn to accept like okay, I guess there are, there are women who have genuinely suffered violent as- sexual assault from men who have been treated like second-class citizens and you know, I had to grant them the reality of that experience. But I I have my own experience too and that doesn't kind of fit in the acceptable narrative and now I wonder if the if the discourse is to rivet you on the bad male does that make all the good males totally invisible and you know it, it could be flipped the other way too it could be applied to issues of race or or class or whatever as well but that's I, I, that, I that's so the issue is simply if is if you're experience is unique or rare versus if it's representative and then what is the significance of its rareness if it is in fact rare wow yeah that's that's almost like creating a new um scientific discipline to sort that out (laughs) uh, seriously i mean you know often individual experience is revelatory of a broader pattern that's been concealed uh but equally, it can be weaponized in order to execute a class action ad hominem. Uh, that, that I think that's what you're getting at. You know that the patriarchy. You know, I, ideas like this can easily be a class action ad hominem in which I can simply dismiss a genuine other as representative of a hostile class or an enemy class or something like that. I think that's that's really a step uh, a step a deep step away from the hermeneutics of charity into the um, the uh, war of all against all in the uh, final result of a hermeneutic of suspicion. Yeah. So let me I'll take this and just theologize it a little bit. And, and here are two examples. One is people really want miracles, not only for the miracle itself, because, but because the miracle functions as a kind of proof of God or, you know, the divine Jesus, love, whatever. And I once came across this wonderful quote from Luther in which he criticized those who place more value on a single miraculous recovery from deadly illness um, than they do on a lifetime of good health. And he said, which is truly the greater work of God, that someone lives to, you know, 80 in, in good health and then dies versus, you know, a single episode of miraculous healing. And I, I just found that so startling, like, oh, right, you know, ordinary good health uh, is, you know, one would hope representative of human life. And we don't even notice it because it's just, you know, taken for granted and we don't give thanks for it and we don't see it as the revelatory moment of of God's provision. It's when the miracle happens. And so in the same way, you know, how do we think about the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection? If there's any claims made about the resurrection, it's that it only happened to Jesus. Even what happened to Lazarus and the son of the widow of Nain is not the same thing. Whatever happened to Elijah and Enoch flying up to heaven directly is not the same thing. If anyone rose from the dead, it was only Jesus. So one way to interpret this is be like, yeah, didn't actually happen because nobody rises from the dead. So this one anomaly is completely senseless. Or you could say, no, by definition, it 
it the, the whole claim is that it had to be only one and it and it was him and the fact that it was him is itself the message being conveyed by the resurrection so you can take this um utterly unique event and interpret it in two entirely opposite kinds of ways all right and so what's your theological moral of the story well, I, I think the I, maybe the more um, methodological thing is that um, just because something is unique doesn't automatically tell you the significance of its uniqueness. So I would uh-huh. say in the case of Jesus' resurrection, the uniqueness is highly significant. In the case of a miracle set against a lifetime of good health, well, yeah, I have more mixed feelings about that one. <laughs> I, I, I think if, right. given the choice, I would rather have the lifelong good health that I barely noticed than the miraculous healing. Though, of course, you know, if I were desperately sick, I would want the miraculous healing too. But you see what I mean? Like, what what is more revelatory of God's presence, the lifetime of good health or the miraculous healing? I don't think the uniqueness there of the m- miracle necessarily is a greater claim to the reality of God's working in the world than the lifetime of good health is. I think that's very helpful, Sarah, very insightful, because I think a lot of uh, uh, weak, uh, substandard Christian theology, both for and against the resurrection of Jesus, regards it as nothing but a miracle. Uh, And it can take the miracle in either of the ways that you said, right? Uh, And so it's just taken for granted that the significance of the resurrection is a miracle. And I think what this obscures is that the resurrection of Jesus is the divine vindication of the one who had addressed God as Abba Father uh, and in obedience went to that terrible ignominy um, of the cross and the the dreadful experience of divine abandonment uh, thereupon. Uh, the vindication of the crucified, that's, yes, that is unique, uh, and its significance, on the other hand, is universal. Unique and universal. Because he lives, we too shall live. Because he is vindicated, we who put our trust in him in spite of our sins are justified, accepted children of God. So I think that the, the distinctions you're making are very helpful in terms of thinking about the uniqueness and also the universal significance uh, of the resurrection of Jesus as the experience of the earliest church. So I think that that leads logically into the next one, which is what claim does this experience have on others? And so to, to build off that, the apostles let's say they experienced the risen Jesus. And after a certain point, Jesus ascends into heaven and is no longer directly accessible as he was to the apostles before and after his crucifixion. But for the apostles, what they had experienced had a claim, first of all, on all other Jews and ultimately on the entire inhabited humanity of planet Earth, that this this, um, experience of Jesus was in principle open and had and made a claim on other people. So I think the the next thing is uh, so the next 
question to ask after the, is it real? And is it representative? And if not, how significant is that? Then what claim does an experience make on other people? So is it by definition private or is it in principle open to anyone? So I suppose like the the generous reading of Whitfield's revivalism is that in principle, the experience of being born again is open to everyone. It is not reserved to a, a private elite. Now, maybe that's functionally what it became. But I mean, his his belief was that everybody could experience this born againism, and therefore um, there was actually something incumbent upon him, as it was on the early apostles, to try to communicate that to others and get them to experience the same thing. And now I, I think that's that's more. Um, that actually has more of an edge now than I, I would have thought previously because there is, again, something about our our re-racializing culture or um, what is called like a, a scurrilously um, cultural appropriation that both wants an experience of certain sets of people to make a claim on others or, in my perception, often a radical will to power against others, but then in principle denies their access to that experience. Um, Not only in fact, because obviously if I am this color, I cannot be that color. And I would say if I am this sex, I cannot be that sex. But it even denies access in imagination and almost seems to want to um, scare people off from imaginatively entering into other people's experiences. And um, I have to say, as both a fiction writer and a human being, I think this is a horrifying (laughs) development because like, the one thing that makes human community possible is the willingness and ability to imagine our ways into other people's experiences. So I guess the two poles there then are, is your principle? Sorry, is your experience in principle open to others such that they could have the experience too? And secondly, does it make a claim on other people whether or not they can experience it directly or imaginatively? And what does that mean? Well, I think that's that, that's that's just that's really great. What what is ruled out, Sarah, by what you've described there is the golden rule: do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because that rule requires our practical imagination, right, walking right. a mile in the other one's shoes, uh, empathy, uh, entering into his or her experience as best as one can in order to fulfill the law of love. So you're right. If the, if the experience is, is incommunicable in principle, it blocks empathy and makes love impossible. And maybe that's the point of the will to power that you're talking about. Right. And I think it's it's really important to say here that the communicability of the experience then is not necessarily that the other person can or has to have it themselves. Um, I think, you know, that's that's what Whitfield wanted to happen. (laughs) But it is saying the positive thing is saying even if you don't experience it yourself because of your act of human charity and imagination, you can get yourself into it through the, you know, imaginatively, you you can share in the experience. And in that respect, it can be communicable. My dear old grandmother, Nanny, who you knew, um, I'll tell a little story about that. You know, she was an immigrant from Slovakia, and there was a history of oppression, being a minority within a minority for centuries. Uh, And they came to America to a land of freedom. 
and inherited all the American prejudices as they assimilated. And I remember in the 70s when she watched the television uh, version of Alex Haley's Roots, mm-hmm. and it, it fascinated her. And I remember visiting her, and she talked to me about it, and she just burst into tears and said, Paul, I never knew what those people went through. Wow. So, in principle, the the imaginative act of the artwork could bring in someone who had, up to that point, no reason or incentive to be sympathetic to the, the Black underclass around her. But immediately from her immigrant background in history, she was able to connect once that act of imagination enabled her to communicate, to experience the experience of others. <laughs> right. That's why systematic theologians should also write fiction. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Every time a, a theologian preaches a sermon, this is exactly what we're doing. We are extending the experience of the risen Lord. Every Christian sermon that is not a communication of the message of the risen Lord, even to the point of literally, as Luther used to lo- love to put... Uh, to give voice to the Lord Christ in his sermons. And you now the Lord Christ says to you today, da, 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 you know. <laughs> right, and right. That, that, that is extending the experience of the resurrection, okay? And that's of course, is what, by the Spirit's gift, enables self-entrusting faith. Okay, let's go on. You have some other things about how to test experience? Uh, yeah, th- these are are winding down now because I think actually those those first three are the most important to even get a grip on the experience itself and be able to do anything with it. Um, but the next one, I think again, it logically extends from the previous one is whether you have to have an experience to count or to be genuine. And so I think this is where the Whitfield model falls apart. You know, I, again, to read it generously, it's trying to say in principle everyone can have this experience of being born again. But then what it turns into is, unless you have this experience of born, being born again, you don't count as a real Christian. Or, you know, I don't count as a real feminist because I have not had these experiences of men. Um, but it doesn't only have to be in, in, in such a negative way. Um, Dorothy Sayers, the great um, golden era of detective fiction author, but also a Christian apologist, writer of many plays and reflections on the Christian faith. Um, I read her saying once that the only Christian doctrine that she had direct and personal experience of was original sin. She was completely (laughs) convinced of original sin. And she said she had no experience of any of the other things, even though she was, you know, she was devout um, and, uh, again, uh, eloquently defended the Christian faith, but she said she was entranced by the doctrinal pattern of incarnation and trinity, and they rationally, emotionally convinced her, but not in an experiential kind of way. And um, I think there was a certain kind of, uh, you know, I don't really understand it, but English evangelicalism that was always dissatisfied with this, like you had to experience all these things that the church taught to really count as a Christian. And so I, I guess
guess one of the question here might be, is someone who is um, electrified and intoxicated by the beauty of Christian doctrine, is that a genuine experience? Is it an experience of, it is an experience. Is it an experience of God? Is it Christian theological experience? Is it, is it saving faith or is it close enough to saving faith? I mean, how, how do you think about that um, demand for experience that isn't necessarily fulfilled in the way that is, is set out as the template for proper experience? That's really excellent, especially for people like you and me. Um, I was really helped, but I've str- kind of struggled with this question that you're raising right here for most of my life. Uh, wondering whether my fascination with uh, theology uh, was an alternative to personal faith. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think <laughs> I you that. might understand. Yeah, you get that. And totally. the, book I read, uh, the book I read recently, Jan Olaf Henriksen, Norwegian theologian, um, really helped me on this because he uh, took the insight that uh, argued the insight, which I found very true, that doing theology is a practice of Christian faith. It is. Faith is experienced in the doing of theology. And I have a sense, Sarah, this is going to be maybe a rather strong statement, but people listening to our podcast might be well sympathetic with it. I think it's the lack of interest in theology in today's clergy is reflective of a spiritual state of today's clergy if it is indeed true that doing theology is a practice of Christian faith. What do you think about that? Yeah, I guess, I mean, being a pastor is super hard. And I just like, I wonder what set of experiences or expectations about what they were supposed to be like were provided at, you know, seminary or candidacy level that just set in motion a path of spiritual emptiness, <laughs> you know, like I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm reluctant to, uh, even, even though I'm often frustrated by what I experience in churches, there just seems to me such poverty <laughs> that uh, I, I wonder who has robbed them. Maybe they've robbed themselves. Surely some of them have, but um, I don't know. I don't know where to go from there. There is such a burnout rate among contemporary clergy. Uh, some friends and I were talking about this just recently. The rate of uh, clergy burnout is just a- accelerating beyond beyond anybody's yeah. expectation, creating a terrible clergy shortage. Uh, right. Uh, and so, but let's go on. Anything else you want to say in this regard? Well, I just think it's really dangerous to set up expectations about what you have to experience to count as a real Christian. Um, so that, I mean, that's bad, obviously. And, you know, I, like you probably learned long ago to deal with people who demanded a date and time for when I was born again. You know, I could say either this morning or the date of my baptism, which do you prefer? You know, like it's, it's not that, that experience is not accessible to me. And, you know, even like I, I've learned at a certain point that if I try, if I try to like take out my faith and gaze upon it directly, it just like, it turns into dust and ashes in my hands. But theologically, I've learned that that actually is the correct answer. That my faith is, itself is not something that I am supposed to gaze upon directly. My gaze is supposed to be directed toward Christ. And then if I really have to ask the question about myself, if I experience the right Christian things, uh, you know, the best I can do is kind of take a 30,000 
foot view of my life and say, you know, balancing out all the options available, it seems likely that at least 70% of Sarah believes in Jesus and has based her entire life about it because she probably wouldn't have done all the bizarre things she's done, like, you know, never drawing a decent salary or moving to the opposite (laughs) side of the planet unless, you know, there was something real going on there. And, you know, just look at it from 30,000 feet and don't try to get any closer because it's like a pointillist painting. You get too close, it doesn't look like anything. It's just blobs. Well, yeah, that's that's right. The, The proper kind of introspection is only as a reflex of extraspection. It's only in looking at Christ that one sees oneself truly in the mirror in the proper kind of way, both as a beloved child of God and as a sinner who's still the Spirit's work in progress, (laughs) right? Right, right. And sorting out that simul justus et peccator experience is the art of pastoral care and of Christian, uh, and really of Christian living, sanctified living. Yeah, don't I don't like looking at that one too closely either. <laughs> so I, I guess where this this brings me to in the end is uh, actually in our last episode, I think I used the phrase our kind of oral Torah of like anecdotes and experiences and pastoral insights over time, and actually you know because of what. Um, Wolterstorff and Gadamer observe that we're always in a stream of tradition. I actually think this is really important to be constantly engaged in conversation, whether that's direct or, you know, like for our listeners, eavesdropping on other people's conversations, to just be constantly aware of the range of possible experiences, both of being a human being and of being a Christian, because being prepared really helps. So, like, there's this... um. You know, the well-known dark night of the soul, which I think St. John of the Cross uh, gave the name to. But this idea that it's actually quite normal in the life of a believer to uh, at least once feel utterly abandoned by God, forsaken truly, as if God is not there, as if faith is gone, just to experience a total spiritual void. Like, if you go into that with no idea that it ever happens to believers, it's devastating and terrifying. If you go into it having heard of it before and heard people talk about it and be like, "Wow, Mother Teresa of all people, she went through that too," right. you know, it, it will not it will not take away the awfulness of it, but it will take away that feeling that you are alone and you are uniquely awful. It will actually, weirdly enough, put you in the company of others even while you're feeling totally spiritually isolated. Yes, Sarah, that that that's where the church the community is the context of all of our individual faith, so that when my faith is weak, I can lean on the faith of others. And when my faith is strong, I can lift up and hold on to those who are who are struggling. And you can't take the experience of faith into this region of interiority and isolation uh, uh, without starving it to death. Faith has to be experienced communally uh, if it's to survive all the dark nights of the soul, I would say. 
Right. And positively, you know, we can, you know, we get baptized only once, in case anyone has any doubts, only once. Um, but what you can do positively as a church is talk regularly about baptism. And when other people are baptized for the first and only time, you can recall the people already baptized to their baptism. You can continually present it to them as a source of reassurance and comfort and strength for what they face. And so, again, what you're doing then is is generating the Christian theological experience and giving people something to handle whatever comes at them, both spiritually and in the normal stream of their lived lives. You know, I, I want to, as we're tra- drawing this to a close, I, I want to come back to my third uh, question to ask today, which is about the social, cultural, spiritual context of, of experience. And I remember the great book by John Douglas Hall, uh, lighten our darkness towards an indigenous theology of the cross, in which uh, he uh, argued, uh, now maybe 40 years ago already, that theology is basically about ex- uh, interpreting experience. It's the interpretation of experience. And the theology of the cross is meant, uh, he was picking up Luther's theology of the cross, is meant uh, to be an interpretation of experience uh, in an in what he called an officially optimistic society, a society which ideologically puts blinders, Pollyanna blinders of optimism on you and doesn't allow you to see the negativities of experience. And therefore, you have no tools, spiritual or theological, to interpret the experience of the negative. I think that was very, very wise argument, and I would like, Sarah, to get your reaction uh, to this uh, statement uh, from a, a, a black Lutheran pastor my age who grew up in Jackson, Mississippi during Jim Crow. He was baptized at the age of 10 and confirmed at the age of 14, and he writes as follows. Our membership was black, but our pastor was white and I don't ever remember him directly addressing the injustice of segregation in a sermon. His congregants lived with this situation every day of their lives, but their church was silent, and the silence confused me and made me wonder if our oppression was condoned by this white denomination I had joined. Race and racism drove me to a crisis of faith even at that age, though I had no name for what I was feeling. The white churches in the South had acquiesced to the evil of Jim Crow. In my mind, they had sold their souls to the devil. Every day, Southern black Lutherans were reminded of how immoral the doctrine of separate but equal was, because we were not equal. Six days a week, we were confronted with our separateness, and on Sunday, our awareness of it became even more acute." So that's my question. What do you make of this kind of divergence between social experience and the experience in the church. Boy, you wanted to end this one easily, didn't you? Thanks for getting revenge <laughs> on me for the hard questions I asked you last time. Um, okay, I, I think, well, I think the first honest thing to say is I've never experienced anything like this, even remotely. And um, so, you know, I accept and respect the experience that this pastor had. I guess, um, and, and I, I guess I honestly have to say the what I have seen of what 
the, the re-racializing lately has made me very wary of, I, I don't even know how to talk about these things fruitfully anymore. Um, I feel like, I feel kind of like a donkey. I'm just like staying put because I feel like if I go any which way, I'm going to walk into a trap. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> again, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be as forthright here about my experience, knowing that like everything I'm saying is totally cancel worthy here. I guess, uh, let me let me approach that anecdote from the perspective of a fiction writer. So, um, what what's going on with the pastor who won't say anything about it? Do we know why the pastor wouldn't? Does he basically think separate but uh, uh, unequal so called is okay? Um, you know what what were the circumstances that brought him even to be a pastor? There was he young and that he was stuck with it with his first call, like oh you got to go do your time in Mississippi and then you get a nice big congregation in the Upper Midwest. I mean maybe, um, or you know maybe just being there present with the people was what the pastor thought was the the best and only thing he could do. And and uh, I wonder about the congregants. Are they telling him? Um, and also why are they there? Like, why are the black Lutherans continuing to go there? Are they relieved not to have to hear about it one one day of the week? Like exactly where your friend as a young man needed so badly for someone to talk about it. Um, maybe for those other people, it was a refuge just for once not to have to cope with it. Um, you know, maybe everybody was... Um, acting out of genuine cowardice, you know, like the the congregants not holding the pastor accountable for his unwillingness to talk about and the pastor being a frank coward in the face of what the other white people around him thought were okay. I guess I can just imaginatively see so many possibilities for what's going on there. And I guess one of the reasons I have become so wary of the kind of interpretation of the social circumstances that goes on from pulpits is how rarely I have felt my own experience reflected in it, yeah. or I felt like I'm being harangued or bullied or gaslit. <laughs> so yeah. um, I, I, I'm, I'm stuck. I, I honestly don't know what to do because I know it's wrong not to address the evils. And like, you know, in our private conversation, we're always naming evils that we see, but I'm so much more cautious about doing it in public. And I don't think primarily because I'm a coward, though that is always a, a real possibility, <laughs> but because I know that people have such a huge range of experience, um, maybe acutely so in my own particular in, international congregation, but but also because I'm really cautious about, you know, naming and denouncing this great evil without really understanding what's going on or being sucked into someone else's idea of what's the wrong thing and I'm not seeing what the real wrong thing is. I'm uh, just a certain kind of maybe intellectual caution. So that's the best I can do. It doesn't feel very adequate. Well, no, but I think intellectual caution is always advisable particularly when you're talking about something you've had no experience of. As you said at the beginning of your response, um, I think that I agree with a lot of what you're saying, the way in which experience feels like it's being weaponized to silence certain people. And instead of creating community and conversation is being used to silence community and conversation, which only exacerbates polarization and hatred. So right, uh, right. M much of that, what you're saying, I agree with. But this is what I would like to say when I thought about this experience. Uh, the, the author of this statement 
is making a remark about a white uh, pastor and um, a white Lutheran denomination uh, to which he had joined. Uh, I, don't, I think what's missing here is the recognition that the kind of social consciousness that came to the fore with Martin Luther King Jr. in the Civil Rights Movement was controversial also within the black churches, African-American churches. And this uh, tension exists to this very day. Uh, Raphael Warnock, who was uh, elected to the United States Senate, actually had published an academic book on the schism within the black church, virtual schism, the deep tension between traditional evangelicals who, just like this pastor in the, in the testimony I read, uh, simply said social and political issues are a whole different realm. Right here, we have a spiritual realm concerned about God and the soul, the soul and God. And uh, this is our haven from the heartless world, and we're not going to contaminate it with politics. And that that attitude uh, uh, is also there in, in African-American Christianity. The evangelical wing of African-American Christianity tends in that direction. And Warnock wrote a book about the, the social uh, legacies descending from King and the deep rootedness of evangelical Christianity among uh, African-American Christians. Uh, and was trying in his book to, to reconcile the two. So I'm just saying that the situation, in a, you know, the experience of this pastor, uh, of this pastor in his youth, is important piece of evidence, but it's just one piece of evidence in a much bigger mosaic, a much more complicated story. And I don't always feel uh, assaulted when somebody raises uh, a testimony like this. I just want to say it's to be used to invite a conversation, not to shut one down. Right, right, right. Okay, well, I feel like we got a much better handle on the topic in this episode, so I'm glad you suggested we should keep going and see it through to the end. Um, I, I think these will this is more useful going forward. Yeah, I do too. Thank you, Sarah. You were uh, uh, well-behaved today. <laughs> well, I can't say the same of you. <laughs> All right. Well, next time on the show, uh, we're going to dive into another experience of church in the not-so-recent past by looking at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Thank you.